This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help them get stuff done, but more importantly, to help their people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Seth Godin. Seth is the author of iconic bestsellers like Purple Cow, Lynchpin, This Is Marketing, and Tribes. He's also the founder of Akimbo and the Alt-MBA, the host of the Akimbo podcast, and much more. He spent 30 years as one of the most in-demand authors and speakers on marketing and creativity. In this episode, we talk about his latest book, The Practice, a surprising and multi-layered book on what it means to put brave and interesting work out into the world. And I took away some brilliant lessons around kindness, willpower, and generosity. This is Seth Godin. have a lot to talk to you about um primarily around your book the practice um which i thought would be a great place to start um the cover of the book has these three words right in the middle shipping creative work so i just wanted to ask you to define those because you do that so wonderfully at the beginning of the book so what does shipping mean to you first of all right so all three words matter shipping is that act of taking it out of the private sphere and sharing it with someone else, putting it into the world. Because in that moment that we ship, it stops being something in our head and starts being something we made for other people. And creative is human work, work that might not work, work that's generous. If it's been done before, if you're following a manual, it's not creative. And a lot of people want a job that feels that way. The problem is that you will be ground to dust. We will find someone cheaper than you. You will be pushed to do it faster and and with less care. And then the last one is work because it's not something you're doing only for fun. You're doing it because it's your job because you promised and committing to be a professional to show up and say, I'm going to consistently do this is something that the internet has helped us lose the thread of because of all this false nonsense about authenticity and following your dream. I think that we are way happier when the work we do becomes our dream, not the other way around. Yeah. And you talk, there's a lovely uh, thing in the book where you talk about the difference between a professional and an amateur, which feels like it might be a useful thing to to throw in here. Yeah. Well, so amateurs, uh, I love being an amateur. My hobbies, I'm an amateur in all of them. On purpose. Uh, An amateur means the work is for you. You do the work the way you want to do it when you feel like it. To be a professional means that you make a promise and you keep it. And you do the reading and you understand what's come before. And you show up in a way that your customer, your client, your partner needs you to because you said you would, not because you feel like it. And you talk in the book about this idea of being on the hook, which you explain as this um is it, is it in turkey where they have the the bread stores where yes. the bread is on the hook so i'd love you to explain that and then it, it feels like it's a kind of metaphor that you return to at various different parts of the book so why is 
on what is on the hook and why is it important? Well, we'll, we'll do the core part of the metaphor first, which is most fish don't want to be on the hook. Like the whole idea, if you're a fish, you're not going to brag about the fact that you want to be on the hook. But if you're a professional, that's what you sign up for because mm. it's about putting yourself on the line to make a commitment. And we hesitate to do that because through all the years of indoctrination and schooling, we discovered that being on the hook was a bad thing, that you want to do the minimum you can to get a good grade. You want to get through the system with as little uh, connection as possible. But if this is going to be our work and our life, I think being on the hook is the only place to be because it's when we're on the hook Mm -hmm. that we get a chance to do this generous work. And the story from Turkey, which is only slightly aligned, but I couldn't get it out of my head once I heard it, is that at traditional bakeries in Turkey, when you go to buy a loaf of bread, you can, uh, if you have some extra money, you can buy two loaves and say to the baker, put one on the hook and it goes on the wall. And if a hungry person comes, they can have it for free with no shame, no hassle. And this idea that our work pays forward, that it gives us a chance to make an impact as we'd like to have an impact made for us, I think that makes it a perfect circle. And it's this very conscious idea of I'm very intentionally going to allow my work to be consumed and then judged by the group of people that I decide should be the, the, the main audience for that work. So you've talked before a lot about uh, resistance and the lizard brain, going back to your book, Lynchpin. So I'd love to hear more about how you deal with the concept of you being on the hook versus when the lizard brain tells you don't release this into the world. Yeah. So um, I've not met many uh, healthy people who can put themselves on the hook with no drama, can put themselves (laughs) on the hook without any fear. And so there's a temptation to just find a path of deniability, to find a path where we can squirm out of it. And the problem with that is it doesn't make us feel fully alive and it doesn't allow us to make the contribution we can make. And so I use that feeling of fear, that feeling of needing to flee as a compass. If I'm not feeling it, then I'm not trying hard enough. But then still that would, you would still have those racing thoughts. So you said at the beginning there in any, any healthy person has that sense of drama. Um, And I'm, putting you in the box of healthy person here, but so what, what are your techniques? What are the other th- things that you feel resistance and you feel like it's going to be the compass and then you run away from, or do you have techniques to help you overcome that? Like, how do you, what's your interaction with the lizard brain and resistance? Okay. So first full credit for the resistance um, to Steve Pressfield, because his book, the war of art really opened my eyes to this. Uh, if you encounter a marathon runner, Uh, if they're telling you the truth, they'll tell you they get tired when they run a marathon. But they might be the laziest person in the world on a Sunday afternoon refusing to get up from the couch and using the remote because they use their tired appropriately. They're not always putting themselves into a position of tired. They just understand that to run a marathon means you are seeking to get tired. So there are plenty of things in my life where uh, fear keeps me from doing them. And that's because I'm not a professional at it. I can say, fine, 
I don't want to do that because I just don't want to deal with the drama. On the other hand, I picked a thing to be a professional at. And part of that means I'm going to get tired, which means I'm going to feel that resistance. Yeah. And I've heard you say before that you you blog every day because one day you decided that tomorrow's another day and so you should just blog again. Surely there are days where you wake up and you you do feel tired or you don't feel like you have something inspired to share. Like what, what happens then? Well, um, I think that most people, there are days that they get up and they don't want to get out of bed and they do. And there are days they get up and they don't want to shower and they do. And there are days they get up and they don't want to go to work and they do because it's their job. And somewhere along the way between seven in the morning and 1030 in the morning, something shifts and they produce something of value that day. And that is a practice. Having a practice means I don't decide to do something because I feel like it. I feel like it because I decided to do something. (laughs) And I only decided once about my blog more than 20 years ago. And now I don't have to have a discussion with myself. What a waste of time to discuss every single day. (laughs) you know. And if you go on a ski vacation for five days, you're going to ski every day, even if the weather isn't optimal. If you live at a ski resort, you're going to take tons of days off because it's not good enough today. I'll just, whatever. And if you do that too many times, the whole winter will go by and you won't go skiing once. And so it doesn't take, you know, some of my blog posts take five hours to write, but some of them take five minutes to write. And um, having this practice uh, makes me better. And so it's a privilege and I don't do it out of obligation. I do it because I can. Yeah. And so you talk a lot in the book about this idea of making the choice, um, you know, stepping forward with a contribution. And so what's, what is your, what does your practice look like? So do you write, do you write every day? Do you have set times? Do you have set routines? What's your, your approach to your own practice? Yeah. So um, I'm a little bit annoying on interviews about this because I quote Stephen King, the the author. Um, Mm. He has said that at writers conferences, the question he gets asked the most is what kind of pencil do you use? (laughs) And it doesn't matter what kind of pencil Stephen King. And I'm not Stephen King, but my rituals don't matter because I know some extraordinarily productive people. My friend, Brian Koppelman makes billions. He did rounders, um, famous around the world. He has a very specific way that he approaches the day. Totally different than mine. Mm. And that's totally different than John Cage, which is totally different than Spike Lee. Go down the list. So given that creative people have nothing in common other than that they're creative, looking for their tactic isn't helpful. I find that the strategy matters more than the tactic. And what's the difference? Strategy is something that uh, doesn't change very often and that you can tell your competition about it won't make any difference. Tactics are constant little adjustments and they're often done in secret. And um, everyone has different tactics, Mm. but the strategy I'm happy to talk about, have a practice. Yeah. So it feels like that's a, I mean, that's a mindset at that more strategic level do you find that that allow is it because of that that you feel like you're going to you're going to write regularly so you don't need to have routine or are there times where you're 
every day that you're not writing anyway or yeah every day i know that something's going to come out tomorrow and if you know that you're going to act differently than if you don't right if you've invited 20 people for a dinner party on friday you're going to spend lots of spare time thinking about what to cook but if no one's coming over on friday you're not yeah absolutely um tell me about your like the the infrastructure that you have around you and the team around you i think i saw something of yours a long time ago where you said i don't have a pa i don't have a team i do everything on my own and then obviously with akimbo you created this much bigger entity around you um is that something that you've changed your approach on over the years do you think about it differently now as you used to just how do you think about you interacting with people who would support you or your need for people to support you yeah so you and I are talking on video. This is the whole team. Akimbo, <laughs> Akimbo is an independent entity. I don't own it yeah. anymore um, because for five years I built it, but I'm a better freelancer than I am an entrepreneur. And mm. I wanted it to become an institution of scale and impact. And yeah. I'm not the person to do that. And so they are a B Corp that are off doing their thing um, because as a freelancer, I understand that I need leverage, but the internet gives me an enormous amount of leverage. But I also mm. understand that I could be sucked into uh, Slack and meetings and organizations and hiring and everything else. And I did it because I cared about the output, but I didn't do it because I like doing it. Yeah. And so this is it. It's just me. <laughs> do you think that really plays into how you see leadership? Because you talk a lot about leadership and it feels like to you leadership is a wide definition and making a difference in the world is leadership by its by its nature are you happier where you're the the creator of that or where you're the enabler of that okay so management and leadership are different and some people can do both Mm. management is using authority and power to get people to do what you ask them to do and we need management in our world um And there are some people who can lead and manage, but I would rather do the scary work of leading and leave managing to somebody else. (laughs) Uh, But if you can do both, by all means. Yeah. Um, When you think about leadership, what's your, do you have a particular mantra or particular style um, in terms of how you like to lead and how you like to make those contributions? Well, I mean, mean, when I'm leading, I would argue that I'm probably doing it in one of two ways. There's this sort of public thought leadership of talking to people I will never meet and um, creating doors that could be opened. Um, And then there's this, when I'm in an institutional setting, how do I engage with people so that they voluntarily choose to go forward? And my model there... uh, is probably best described as a studio model. If you think about Hollywood during uh, its most effective years, people come together, they work on something, each taking responsibility. The gaffer doesn't tell the best boy what to do. Mm -hmm. And the screenwriter is going to work with this team today and a different team tomorrow. But voluntarily coming together to make a thing is uh, way more common than most people think we think about a company as having, you know, cubicles and 
and top-down organization, but lots of things are built with cohorts of people who have chosen to come together and they make promises to each other. So that is my model of leadership, Mm -hmm. but there are way more effective ways to, you know, win a land war in Asia or something. Yeah. Um, One of the things that always strikes me from, it certainly came across very strongly in the practice and is also the, one of the one of the sort of features of many of your blog posts is you it feels like you walk around New York or whatever city you're in or whatever town you're in and you just see things you just notice stuff um so I wanted to ask you where that curiosity comes from is it very innate and if someone wanted to get more curious like is that something that you can learn and and practice too Yeah. So one of my hot buttons is believing in talent. I don't believe in talent. I think almost nothing is innate. I've never met a six-month-old kid who could ride a bike or juggle or speak a sentence that was worth listening to. So somewhere along the way, we learn all these things. They're skills. Being curious is definitely a skill. And it is a skill that is burned out of kids because teachers are exhausted. Um, Most six-year-olds are pretty curious. And by the time they're 12, so mm-hmm. I I used to have one right here behind me. I don't know where it is. Do do they uh, where you live have the drinking bird? It's like a glass thing that goes back and forth. So it's a it's a bottle. It's a glass of water. Yeah, and it's a blown glass sort of caricature of a bird, and it puts its beak into the water and then bounces back and forth and bounces back and forth and then it goes back to the water. And there's no batteries or anything. You can look it up online. Okay, and. So I set it up in front of uh, four straight-A students who are 12 and 13 years old. And I say, there's the drinking bird. Look at it. How does it work? How does it work? And they look at me and they go, we don't know. And they take out their pencils ready to write down the answer. Because that's what we taught kids to do, particularly high-achieving kids, is write down the answer and we'll quiz you tomorrow. No, 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 no. I don't want to tell you how it works. I want you to figure out how it works. You can ask me questions about what it's made out of and theories that you have, but let's, and it was such a painful half hour for Mm. the kids because it wasn't something that was taught to them. And these questions, who's it for? What's it for? How's it work? What are the side effects? Why is it like this? Why did that person do this? Because everyone is irrational and rational at the same time. Everyone. Yeah. If they're doing a behavior, if there's a system in place, if doorknobs are designed the wrong way, why is that? And, you know, I had amazing parents and they encouraged me to be curious in this way. Mm. Uh, And then I got rewarded for it in the outside world. um, And that stuck with me, but I don't believe it's a talent. I think I just decided to get curious. Yeah, because I think I'm quite curious in the way that I think and often I'm known in meetings with my team as Graham's the question guy right so I'll we'll be you know there'll be some group think going on or there'll be there'll be something developing and I just I throw in the questions um yeah rather than the answers but I I don't know where that comes from in me um but one of the things that's been a bit of a a sort of hobby horse over the last couple of years is I don't know if you have the same in the States, but um, here in the UK, a lot of politicians will criticize the subjects of history and sociology and media studies. I don't know if that's the same uh, in the States, but 
and you can probably see where I'm going with this, but basically it feels like those are the subjects that teach critical thinking, right? And much of where we're at with the response to COVID being a rise in anti-vax, you know, propaganda versus the fact that this should be the thing that kills. I mean, this is like we're seeing a a vaccine-free world uh, right here with COVID, right? So um, it should have been the thing that killed the anti-vax agenda and actually it's brought it to the fore. And I think a lot of that is to do with just in society, we've, we've not caught up critical thinking to the same level as the supply of information through the internet, right? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I think that um, fear is in fact a talent. People are born with fear. Okay. And uh, fear is hardwired into us. And now we are uh, allowing an enormous, uh, enormously powerful engine to profit from mm. amplifying fear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how can there be breaking news every day? By sooner or later, it stops being breaking news and just starts to be normal. And the idea that people are making a living by pushing everyone to be disconnected, afraid, angry, and uh, competing with each other for who can come up with the most ludicrous stories is clearly amplifying fear for profit. And, um, you know, anti-vaxxing, there's a a wonderful book called On Immunity, and it it is super level-headed. It is not um, a diatribe. And if you read the history of the fear of vaccination, it has been around for a very long time and it's not new. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with autism and it is understandable because it involves blood and it involves biology and it involves public health and epidemiology and statistics, all of which humans are bad at. <laughs> and so you're correct that schools should teach two things, how to lead and how to solve interesting problems. And mm. what to do about a worldwide pandemic is both. And yeah. yet we have taught kids neither in school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to just talk to you a bit about kindness. Um, so I'm writing like this book. new book. Very exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. Um, and at the moment, I'm talking to people about what kindness means to them um, and just the role that you see for for kindness in business. So I guess the first question, coming back to to leadership and to having a practice, what role do you, it feels like you you often use very emotive language in the way that you write in, in, in a way that's very noticeable to me because I don't see it so often in, in other people's books. Um, so maybe let's start with that. Like, is that a really conscious thing? You talk a lot about generosity. Um, there's a whole bunch um, that I wrote down. You know, you've got, uh, you talk a lot about generosity you talk about ruckus, resistance, contribution, vulnerability, stuff that presumably when you're going into businesses and doing talks or when people in businesses are, are reading your books doesn't actually fit often with uh, you know, the kind of cultures that they're in um, in terms of workplace culture. So was that a really conscious thing to, to, to lace your books with that kind of very emotive language? What I found in 30 years of giving a thousand talks of interacting with a million, two million people is the tactics are all widely available. 
everyone has the same playbook. Everyone could see what Howard Schultz was doing with Starbucks. He was happy to tell you. And then he wrote about it in detail. And yet no one figured out how to catch up. Well, is it because the tactics are the challenge? No, the problem is that if you don't have the uh, emotional commitment to the journey, the tactics don't do you any good. And the easiest thing to do in a business book is to put together a set of tactics that promise a proven solution that doesn't put the reader on the hook. Just do these steps. Mm -hmm. It will work. It's not about you. And what I found over and over again is you can show up with the right answer, but if someone doesn't say yes, nothing's going to happen. And they're not going to say yes until they're willing to put themselves on the hook. And I have 400 stories of places where I could go and explain in detail how this was working and how their competition. And no, we're not. It's, we'd rather wait. You know, the most famous one is Western Union turning down Alexander Graham Bell and the phone company because the telegraph was working. The phone was risky. We'll, yeah. No, we'd rather not be. I don't want to be the person who said yes to this change because the people around me will be stressed. And, yeah. you know, yeah. in our modern day, the problem with uh, all the social media companies having so many people with stock options is everyone is surrounded by people who need the stock price to go up. And so they make short-term decisions because they're not willing to put themselves on the hook emotionally to go to the next thing. So the tactics don't matter as much as changing hearts and minds. So that's what I try to do with my writing. Um, And kindness, I mean, you've thought about this a hundred times more than me, but I think that there's two kinds of kindness in business. The first one is uh, the oil that lubricates the gears that keep the system running, which is that most people go to work to feel, uh, to make a living, but also to feel connected and respected and dignity and uh, to be part of something. And if you can make your profit go up in the short run by 1%, by being cruel and evil to people in the short run, your profit's not going to go up for long because the gears are just going to crash against each other. Cause most people are not there to make your profit go up. Most people are there because it, they're telling themselves a story about meaning and worth. Um, but there's a second kind of kindness, which I'm way more interested in, which is you can be as kind as you want, but if you work at Philip Morris and you make cigarettes, you're still killing people. Yeah, And yeah. We, should, we should own our work. We should yeah. be able to say, I made this and I will take responsibility for what happened. Yeah. So like with Akimbo, so you built Akimbo and it's become a B Corp, which for those, those people who don't know, so B Corp is an accreditation that says we're a company that has more to us than profit. We're going to contribute to society. We're going to think about our impact on the planet at the same time. Was that, were you involved in that decision to become a B Corp? I applauded that decision. It was part of the transition, but yeah. the kind of people who run Akimbo, it didn't surprise me in the slightest that that was important to them. And I said, this is exactly the kind of compass that makes sense because yeah. Akimbo is never going to go public. Akimbo is never going to get acquired. So what are you here for? And having that sort of compass enables the organization to focus even in the short run on things that will pay off in the long run. Yeah. 
do you feel like you've always had a drive to want to make a difference? Like your uh, definition of marketing is quite a wide one and you talk about people making a contribution and making a difference. So is that something that you have always felt within you? Has, has that changed as you've gone through your life? Just curious about where that comes from. So um, Buffalo, New York, even though it's in New York, is more like the Midwest of the U.S. It's <laughs> I've not been a to very... Buffalo, actually. Oh, great. Did you have any yeah, so people while you were there? I'm a, I'm a big Toronto Blue Jays fan. Okay. And uh, our uh, AAA affiliate is the Buffalo Bisons. So yes. I've actually been to a game at Buffalo just to, just to check it out. Fantastic. So yeah. uh, it's a small town. And um, I won the parent lottery. My dad was the volunteer head of the United Way. And my mom was the first woman on the board of the local art museum. Okay. And we always had a parade of people in our house who needed help, who were looking for community. Um, and I just was taught that this was normal. Mm, and um, right. I miss my parents every day. And I try to live up to that ideal. Nice. Yeah, it's a lovely inspiration. Let's just think a little bit more about um, the world and kindness. Um, do you do you sense that, like, it feels like kindness has been a a theme this year online, where people are just really craving that and really craving human connection. Um, do you feel like that's something that, as we go into a more post COVID um, future, are we going to see that continue? Do you think we'll see that um, fall back a little bit? Um, where do you see the role of kindness in in business in the future? You know, I think that Milton Friedman uh, didn't mean to completely disrupt the world when he made up the story that the only purpose of a business is to make a profit for its shareholders. But um, as there's been a ever widening gap between big companies and little and between the richest and the non-richest, what people are discovering is that what goes with kindness is dignity. And dignity is mm. essential. That every thriving culture is built on dignity at some level. Um, we can get there in lots of ways, some of which are more painful than others. And I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, we gave a microphone to everybody and a lot of the pioneers of the internet, me included, thought this was going to be an unalloyed good thing. Uh, I've always been afraid of anonymous speech, but it felt to me like allowing people to speak up because I believe that humans have something to say was a good thing. And yeah. the problem was the trolls grabbed the microphone early and loudly. And I'm hopeful that now people are going to take a deep breath and say, well, maybe what we ought to be doing is being more intentional about this and creating circles of people that we want to spend time with, not simply be subjected to whatever the algorithm decides we need to. That I don't think it should be a valid business model to make people feel bad. Yeah. Which I guess has been also the coming back to what you're saying before about the, the print press, right? Like the headlines and all of that is it, it's almost like a very, it, it's like the worst form of marketing, right? Like it's marketing based on fear. It's marketing based on one upmanship for the, for the last scary headline, making the next one even more scary. Yeah. And I, you know, the print media, I think has two natural breaks on it. One is it costs money to print uh, paper and two is advertisers are paying a lot of attention. Uh, 
social media is different. You know, it, mm. we have been persuaded that the algorithm is immutable. It's not. The algorithm, the one that highlights uh, breaking news and, and tragedy and hate, got that way because they made more money doing it that way. Yeah. And they could yeah. turn three dials and it wouldn't be that way anymore. Mm. And at some point, my hope is that companies that can say, well, we don't have to worry about competition because we're already a monopoly. We'll just turn the dial and say they are better off. Their shareholders are better off. Their employees and their users are better off in a society that's based on possibility and dignity, not one that's based on Armageddon. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a bit more about um, productivity and um one of the sections of, of the practice that I really loved was you talking about um, saying no and boundaries. And you talk about the idea of inbox zero. And you talk about, uh, I can't remember the exact um, words that you use, but it, it's some, something along the lines of um, it's, it's a noble thing to try and get to inbox zero, but it means that you're constantly focusing on the stuff that that has just come in and is urgent rather than the stuff that's important. But then you talk in that same little section about uh, it's important to have really strong boundaries and to say no. And sometimes saying no to something is the most generous thing you can do for the work and for everything else. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with this part. And then you said something like, um, but if you say no too much, then it becomes a matter of ego. And you start using that as a way to resist the work more. So I'd love to just hear more about your thoughts on that. And I think you're you're someone who's who's quite well known for for two things: one, being really clear on what you do and don't want to do, and secondly, on answering lots of people's emails. So, so I'd love to just know how you manage to do all of that. Well, I ho- I hope I'm known for something other than that, but it's my bad habit. Oh, lot, lots of other things too, but like those are two things that right. constantly come up. Whenever I talk to people about you, it's like, oh, I emailed Seth once like eight years ago and he responded straight away and it was magic. And people are really touched by the fact that you make the time to do that. Well, that's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's nothing I recommend to people. Here's the, uh, the point I'm trying to make is this. Uh, we only have a limited number of cycles to make the impact we seek to make in the world. There are lots of paths to do that, but I think we should be intentional about which path we are on. So if you're going to make only three movies in a 21 year span, working seven years on each movie, the obligation for you to your work is that each one of those movies probably has to have more impact on the people you seek to serve than if you were going to be, you know, somebody who's making uh, a short film every 30 days, because it just doesn't, the math doesn't work, right? Or seven Fast and Furious movies in the same time period. (laughs) Exactly, right? But there's, so at some level, each of us has the chance to contribute something to the whole. And we have to do it in a way where we take care of ourselves so we can contribute anything. But then within that, the question is, how much are you hiding? And how much of it is you conserving your resources so that you can do the work that you're proud of? And Mm. what I'm trying to argue in the practice is we have been seduced into hiding. There are people in power who want us to hide. That if we don't adopt a practice, if we just keep reading the breaking news and doing that 
super short-term cycle thing, nothing but that. We can end the day feeling like we did a lot, but we didn't succeed because there's nothing that adds up to much. And so in my case, I said, uh, if I said in 1996, if a human being cares enough to send me an anonymous, generous note, I'll do my best to write back to them. I'm regretting having to keep that going 185,000 emails later, but um, I'm glad I did it because it allowed Mm -hmm. me to connect directly to people who wanted to impact my work and vice versa. But I don't use Facebook. I don't use Twitter. I don't go to meetings. I don't use Instagram um, and I don't watch television. And so I've regained six or seven hours a day that most people have sacrificed. Yeah. And in, in those six or seven hours, I'm not spending the whole time answering my email. I'm spending the time creating moments where I can say, okay, well, if I've reserved this time, I better not waste it. What can mm-hmm. I do that I can point to? And um, I don't have any magic. I, there's nothing I have had access to that other people haven't had access to. Right? I grew up with privilege. I'm super lucky. I'm healthy. All those things are great advantages, but it's not like the founder of the internet gave me a break, right? It's not that my blog is in a place where you can't have your blog. So the whole idea of an open system that uh, lets people contribute is magical. That wasn't even imagined a hundred years ago and, or even 30 years ago. So what will you do with these tools? That is the question. If you're going to use them saying, well, I need an agent and I need a gallery, well, then you're hiding. But if you can figure out how to develop a practice, then you might be able to make things better. And there's a couple of things that you've said that I think also really chime with the ideas and the practice, but that really feel like me like they come down to someone with a very remarkable willpower. So, you, you know, you talk about you decide to do this thing and then you follow it through. You decide to answer every email. You made the decision many years ago and then you might regret it, but you're not revisiting it. You're not renegotiating it. And the same with I'm putting out a blog post because I decided I was going to do one every day. Like that strikes me as quite an unusual level of willpower. And I just wondered, first of all, whether you agree with that. Do you think you have more willpower than, yes, than most people? I do. Yeah. Um, and I'm not. I'm not sure if willpower is a talent or not. Scientists. That yeah, I that know, was going to be my next question. Yeah. Scientists. <laughs> scientists that I know disagree about this. Yeah, and um, I do believe that even if you have a talent for it, it's a skill, mm-hmm. and you can learn it. Yeah. And there are lots of ways to learn it. You can set up mar- marshmallow tests for yourself. You can figure out how to. Uh, take things out of your kitchen and put them in a place where you'd have to go for a walk to get them, right? There's all these ways that we know to build a habit and willpower is a habit, but uh, there are a lot of decisions that I have made through the years that I do not revisit and it takes effort to do that, but then it becomes a habit and then it doesn't take effort. And can you think of any decisions like that in your wider life away from work that you've had the same kind of response to or the same kind of approach to? Yeah. Like I haven't had meat or dairy in 30 years and I haven't missed it in 29, not once. (laughs) Like even for money, I wouldn't eat a hamburger because I just have no desire to do so. I just made a rule 
And now it's much simpler. I, uh, I had surgery on both my shoulders when I was a teenager and they hurt me every day and every night for 25, 30 years. And then one day accidentally I discovered that wheat makes it worse. And so I haven't had a grain of wheat since it's just done. Right. And I just don't, because my work involves dancing with possibility and little tiny threads of stuff that might not work and indecision and magic there's only a limited amount of that that people can tolerate. And so in the other parts of my life, I make it so that I don't have to do that there too. I don't have to spend any cognitive load deciding what I'm going to have for breakfast because I have rules and that's what I do. And yes, I have probably missed out on certain kinds of sybaritic adventures, but that's okay with me. (laughs) Um, we've got a couple of minutes left before we finish up. So um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is you talk about in the book, um, the idea of when you're moving on to the next creative thing that you have to ask yourself that question, do I care enough to to do it again? So I just wanted to ask you, have you ever thought, screw it, I'm done. I've done 20 odd books. Um, I've had a very successful career. I'm now going to go and just, you know, do fly fishing for the rest of my life or something like that. I think about it all the time. I've been thinking about it all the time. I've been thinking about it all the time for a long time because the intentionality of it matters. I shouldn't do one of these books or one of these projects just because I have to do a next thing right away. I should do it because it's worth the journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I get older, uh, it's harder and harder to say it's worth the journey because the incremental benefit to me is low. The incremental benefit, I just believe though, that the incremental benefit to somebody else, somebody new, yeah. would be higher. And so that reflex kicks in. And I say, well, I have this trust. I have this possibility. What will I do with it? And I'll make the commitment. But there are plenty of books I've started that no one will ever read. And you know, there's thousands of blog posts I've written that no one will ever see because it's just not worth it. Yeah. Well, that's reassuring because even when you have those very high levels of willpower, there's there's other other forces at play there that are, that stop. Oh, those yeah, it's very noisy inside my head for sure. Yeah, um, and I guess my very final question for you is: How do you look? How do you view success? What would success look like for you over the next few years? And what are you most proud of? Um, I think they're related. When I see the work people who have learned from me have done. When I see what they have taught other people, that's what I'm keeping track of. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, when I can point to an institution, organization, a body of work, a person who has shifted because I helped them make things better for other people, that feels like yeah. a, a, a day well spent. Yeah. Well, over the years, you definitely inspired me and, and shifted me in lots of different directions. Um, so, Seth, just want to say thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so the book is The Practice. Do you want to just let people know um, where else they can find out about other things that you're involved with or anything else that you want to share with us? So the Creators Workshop starts uh, this month at uh, akimbo.com. And you can read all my blog posts and excerpts from the book and everything at seths.blog, S-E-T-H-S dot B-L-O-G. Perfect. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you for the work you do. I can't wait to read the new book. Thanks, Seth. 
So I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. I've been a fan of Seth's work for a long time and had some really nice uh, email interactions with him in the past as well. So um, yeah, just a delight to have Seth on Beyond Busy. And uh, just want to say thanks to Matt and Lydia and everyone at Penguin for helping to set that one up. So this kind of marks, you might have noticed in the intro, it was a slightly more scripted intro than usual. And the reason for that is that we have moved the podcast into not just being an audio podcast, which it will continue to be, but also being a video one as well. So we're now available on YouTube. It's a brand new channel. We're trying to give it a push over the next week. And so in doing that, even if you're subscribed to Beyond Busy as an audio podcast, I'd love it if you could just go onto YouTube and just search for Beyond Busy Seth Godin and just subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. That would be really helpful. Uh, just as a way of giving it a push, it would really help me out. So go and uh, spread the word on YouTube, share the links to YouTube around with people and um, just looking to get more views for that that first YouTube video. And we'll put them all out on YouTube going forward, all put together by Riz from our team. So just want to shout out to Riz for some stellar work in pulling all this together and making Seth Godin the first of our new video episodes. So that's it for another week. I'll do, so just going forward, I'm going to do all the sort of rambling bits that some of you hate and some of you really enjoy. They'll all be at the end now. So um, if you want to hear what I'm up to and hear me rambling on about the weather and Toronto Blue Jays and things like that, then it'll be at the end of the podcast, not at the beginning. Some of you will be sat listening to this going, yeah, hallelujah, about time, Graham, whatever. Um, but yeah, if you want to connect with me, so it, um, all the show notes are as ever at getbeyondbusy.com links to everything we talked about in the podcast and all the previous episodes uh, and you can subscribe to my weekly email rev up for the week it goes out every sunday and the idea is it's just a positive or productive thought for the week ahead and that's at graham forward slash links and if you go there you'll see basically everything that i'm doing right now including the button to subscribe to the rev up for the week email so graham forward slash links Um, If you have thoughts about guests that you'd like to see coming up on the podcast, you can always email them through to me, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And my DMs are open on Instagram. I'm just at Graham Alcott there. So feel free to add me there and chat there and all that good stuff. This episode, as always, is sponsored by Think Productive. We take productivity training and workshops and coaching into organizations around the world, helping people to get stuff done and make space for what matters. If that is of interest, go to thinkproductive.com and find out more there. And shout out also to Jess, who has been putting together the new Think Productive website, which is just about to go live as this comes out. So uh, when you go to thinkproductive.com, you might still see the old site, but you might see a brand new, shiny new one. And I think even if you've never been on our site before, you're going to know which is which. Let's put it that way. It's really exciting. So shout out to Jess as well. And I'm looking forward to making this the regular pattern of of Beyond Busy is that we're out every week, but also we're on video as well as audio every week. So please subscribe here on, on audio wherever you get your podcast. And also if you could just go and subscribe just for the sake of it to the YouTube channel, that would just really help us to boost our views in the first week and get the channel off to a good start so that would just really help me out go and subscribe and click all the the bells and all that stuff on youtube that would be a big help we'll be back next week with another episode it's a good one next week i think you're gonna enjoy it so until then take care bye for now